0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Gardy, recording from STAT's New York City Outpost.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost.
0: Adam Feuerstein is away today, moving his son into college.
1: It's Thursday, August 23rd, and here's what's on the docket this week.
0: The world is about to get its first look at how well genome editing works in actual human beings. We'll dig into what you need to know ahead of the clinical data.
1: President Trump wants to allow publicly traded companies to report their earnings to investors just twice a year, instead of each quarter. We'll walk through the hypothetical implications for biotech.
0: What's the best way to avoid making an investment you'll regret? A keen eye for red flags. Silicon Valley venture capital investor Greg Yap joins us to talk about what sets off alarm bells for him when he's evaluating a life sciences company.
1: And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round. It'll be packed full of hot takes on a high-stakes cholesterol trial, the secret to CAR T cells, and a bunch of biotech pitches at Silicon Valley's biannual tribute to disruption.
0: Genome editing has attracted a tremendous amount of attention and excitement because of the technology's potential to cure disease by, as the name implies, cutting out or replacing disease-causing genes.
1: But for all the buzz created by genome editing, one very important thing has been missing from the story. That's clinical data in patients.
0: Exactly. Up until now, genome editing experiments have been conducted in test tubes and in animals. But late last year, the biotech company Sangamo Therapeutics started a clinical trial using a one-time genome editing fix to treat people born with a rare inherited disease. That study is still underway, but Sangamo intends to present preliminary results at a medical conference on September 5th.
1: This week, Adam wrote a story previewing the expected readout from Sangamo's genome editing clinical trial. And as we said at the top of the podcast, Adam isn't here because he's helping his son move into his freshman dorm. But before he left, Adam and Damien jumped into the studio to explain what exactly Sangamo is doing in this first-in-human genome-editing clinical trial. Take a listen.
0: So, Adam, the disease that Sangamo is targeting with its genome-editing therapy is very rare. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Damien. It's called MPS2, or Hunter syndrome, and there are only
2: about 500 people, almost always males, who are diagnosed Uh, with this inherited disease in the U.S. Uh, People with MPS2 are born with a defective gene, which causes a toxic substance to build up in their tissues. Because of the gene defect, they lack an
0: enzyme needed to break down uh, this waste product and remove it. Gotcha. And then I think it's important to note that Sangamo is using a technology people may not have heard of, and it's called zinc finger nucleases, to edit the genomes of these MPS2 patients.
2: Right. Yeah. I I imagine most people have heard of the gene editing tool known as CRISPR. I won't get into too many details here, but suffice to say that zinc finger nucleases are another gene editing technology that Sangamo has been working on for like two decades. Um, In this case, Sangamo is using these zinc fingers to make a cut in the DNA of a certain type of liver cell. And in that cut, the therapy then inserts a copy of a healthy gene that will make the enzyme needed to break down that waste product. So like simply speaking, Sangamo uses gene editing to turn certain liver cells into tiny
0: enzyme-producing factories. So, and as we noted before, this first Sangamo clinical trial is still underway, and the presentation of the final results is scheduled for September 5th, right? Yeah, and
1: this'll
2: be an early peak at the study results in just four MPS2 patients. So don't expect to make any kind of definitive judgment on genome editing quite yet. you know. But from this tiny sample, we will get the first look at the efficacy and safety of a gene
0: editing therapy in patients. So that kind of makes the presentation a big deal. So once we have these results, is there a way to tell from these data just how safe and effective the sangamotherapy therapy might be in the long term? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, interpreting the data is going to be tricky
2: because we're only talking about a handful of patients and they're treated for a relatively short period of time. But if the sangamotherapy therapy does work, we should see some evidence that those genetically edited liver cells are producing small amounts of that corrective enzyme. Um, you know, I break down more of the details in my story. So log on to stat, to read. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Damien.
1: This feels like a thousand years ago at this point. But back on August 17th, President Trump had an idea when it comes to the quarterly earnings statements that public companies have to make.
0: And that idea was to stop them from being
1: quarterly whatsoever. So the story is that Trump was talking to what he referred to as some of the world's top business leaders. And they said that they could improve their businesses and create jobs by putting out financial statements just twice a year instead of four times a year.
0: And here's what Trump told reporters, quote, And I thought of it and it made sense to me because, you know, we are not thinking far enough out. We've been accused of that for a long time, this country. So we're looking at that very, very seriously. We're looking at twice a year instead of four times a year.
1: So there's a lot to pick apart there. But let's talk about how it might affect drug companies and the vibrant market that tries to predict whether they'll succeed or fail. So yeah, the
0: most obvious effect of this, I think, would be on companies that already have actual drugs on the market. So investors and analysts rely on those quarterly snapshots at sales to build their models for the future. If revenue in the second quarter is worse than in the first quarter, then you probably want to lower your expectations for the entire year. However, if you go with Trump's plan and you reduce the number of those snapshots by half, you're injecting a lot of uncertainty into that whole process, and the market, of course, does not like uncertainty.
1: But it would also affect biotech companies with no products on the market, right? You know, for them, quarterly earnings are less about dollars and cents than they are a chance for management to provide important updates on clinical trials and answer questions from analysts. Betting on biotech, of course, is a very high-stakes proposition. So these tidbits of information are incredibly valuable to investors. Trump's plan, of course, would see them get two updates a year instead of four. And that could lead to more guesswork and thus more risk.
0: And the other thing that came to mind, to me at least, with this plan is that it could create the risk for insider trading. So if you're a company insider, you can't always buy and sell shares in your company because sometimes you know important things that the public doesn't know. But you can pretty much always buy and sell right after earnings because the theory is that your company has just bared its soul to the world. And so, you know, following logic, if there are half as many earnings reports, then that's basically twice as much time in which insiders know things that the public doesn't. And I think that can create a risk. I mean, as we know, secrets get out and then trading happens and then sometimes people go to federal prison.
1: And it goes beyond company insiders, right? There's also a dichotomy here between these sort of big, powerful institutional investors and retail investors, Uh, The fear here is that big investors, who of course have more access to management, uh, will catch a whiff of what's going on before mom and pop investors do. And that could make the playing field less level.
0: And the last thing is, I'm not totally sure that this idea would actually do much to solve the alleged problem that it seeks to. So from Trump's statement, and uh, apparently he had spoken to the outgoing CEO of Pepsi, who had made similar statements, There's a problem in American capitalism, and that problem is short-termism. So you'll hear this from CEOs often where they feel like their ability to plan for the long-term and execute their vision is hampered by the fact that the mean old market is so concerned with quarterly earnings and sales in the short-term and things that make it harder to grow the business and make it more sustainable. I don't really see how just not telling people stuff would solve that or change that approach whatsoever. And furthermore, it seems like it would only increase volatility in the market. So if you go back to that example we mentioned before about a company releasing its its quarterly sales, if those sales are on the decline, in the standard system, they would decline a little bit in the first quarter and a little bit in the second quarter, and then people could adjust their predictions accordingly. If it's only disclosed once every half year, then there's going to be a big decline at the halfway mark, and likely the market will react volatily rather than if this information had come out piecemeal in the regular way. And I just don't really see who benefits from that.
1: So how is this all likely to play out?
0: So in response to Trump, the chairman of the SEC put out a sort of non-statement that basically said, we appreciate all ideas and we think about all of them all of the time. And it called to mind to me, like when one of our editors sends out an email with a misguided story idea and you respond, wow, yeah, interesting, uh, which is to say it's probably not going to happen anytime soon.
1: venture capital investor in biotech, you've got to have a keen eye for red flags. After all, you
0: don't want to miss the telltale signs that a startup might be a disaster in the making and make an investment you'll
1: regret. Greg Yab, a Silicon Valley venture capital investor, is in the business of looking for red flags. Greg has spent most of his career on the operating side in biotech, including a stint running Roche's cancer diagnostics business. These days, he's an investor at Menlo Ventures, deciding whether to invest in companies working on therapeutics, digital health, and novel technologies.
0: And today, Greg's here to talk about what sets off alarm bells for him when he's evaluating a company.
1: Greg, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. So, Greg, the typical startup pitch starts out by describing a problem or quote-unquote unmet need in the existing market. What do you keep an ear out for when you hear
3: that spiel? Uh, well, one of my pet peeves is is the word disrupt, right? I, I hear a lot uh, disrupting Uh, It's really become part of the Silicon Valley lexicon. Um, Every entrepreneur wants to disrupt somebody, Um, but I think disrupting without understanding is one of the red flags that I really look for. I think this word is often uh, misused, um, but I especially dislike how it's often applied in healthcare. People talk about healthcare is broken, healthcare sucks, we need to disrupt it, we need to fix it with technology. Um, And well, you know, if you disrupt somebody's healthcare, right, they might die, right? And the reality of today's system, right, the system that we live in, as opposed to maybe the system that we might want to live in, right, entrepreneurs have to be able to win within a complex ecosystem that includes patients and providers and, and payers and regulators. You know, startups need to understand not just the pain point that they're trying to solve, but really the root cause of why that pain point has existed, why that pain point continues to exist. You know, how to really make change in an ecosystem, I think, really depends on that. Um, for instance, if you don't have a health economics or a reimbursement expert on the team, uh, you probably need one. Right? I think it's only by understanding why the system is the way it is that can you really truly uh, disrupt the market in, in the way that the concept was originally intended, which is really solving a problem for a, for an underserved segment. I think PillPack is a great example of that. You know, Their billion dollar idea, disrupting pharmacy, uh, it, it really involves uh, serving the population uh, that is trying to manage multiple medications. And they did it by building a a custom-built operating system that helps coordinate between all the stakeholders, patients, distributors, insurance, and physicians.
1: Now, the second part of a startup's pitch is all about how the company plans to solve the problem or the unmet need that they've identified. So Greg, what are some things that set off alarm bells for you when you're assessing a company's execution strategy?
3: Uh, well, when I see companies that are, are trying to solve more than one uh, a big, audacious goal at a time, you know, that definitely sets off some red flags. Uh, you know, startups do exist to take risks, um, but healthcare is hard enough and complicated enough that, in my experience at least, it's usually a bad idea to try to take on more than one big risk at a time. Uh, as an example, you know, a company that's trying to develop a novel technology that has unproven clinical utility that gets paid through an unusual payment mechanism like consumer pay uh, has usually ended badly. You know, I, examples of those, a lot of the wearables companies, a lot of molecular diagnostics uh, uh, enterprises. You know, what I look for instead really are novel combinations of proven technologies, uh, novel technologies that get paid for in boring ways, uh, like existing reimbursement codes, uh, and automating uh, proven clinical algorithms, but ones that have broken workflows or or impractical workflows. You know, In therapeutics, where a lot of the biggest risks are in the clinic, you know, I like platforms that can try to de-risk some of those uh, some of those clinical risks. Can't get rid of, but try to de-risk clinical risks uh, through depth and disease biology and in preclinical models. You know, companies like Pliant Therapeutics, uh, where they're they're developing a pipeline of drugs and fibrosis.
0: So let's say there's a potential investment and it's reached the point where you are going to the company's headquarters to meet with management. Are there things you're looking for in the office, or like physical, like manifestations
3: of the company that might be either red flags or encouraging signs as you take that meeting? Uh, well, if I if I walk into a drug discovery company without a lab, it's likely to be a pretty short conversation. You know, I love computational technologies and drug discovery, uh, machine learning, large data sets, computer vision, uh, molecular docking. All these things can play huge roles in modern drug discovery. You know, but obviously we're trying to cure diseases in people, not in machines. You know, and you can't yet fully model human biology in silico. And so what I look for is something special in both the data science side and the biological insight side. Uh, I think Recursion Pharma is a great example of this. You know, Their core technology is computer vision-based screening, but they built some really significant capabilities in rare genetic diseases, uh, and they're preparing for their first clinical trials.
1: So Greg, what are you wary of when you're assessing the team? Uh, of course, that's all the way from the C-suite down to the specialists.
3: Uh, yes, well, I'm definitely looking for uh, uh, teams that have some balance, right? If the team doesn't have enough balance, that's definitely a red flag. You know, I, think, I do think that success in our industries, in life science and in digital health, uh, usually requires the collision of multiple disciplines, uh, whether it's biology and computation, engineering and chemistry, uh, people with the technology focus versus people focused on applications. You know, delivering a complete solution in these markets really requires the right mix of skill sets. And of course, companies aren't born with all the skills that they need. Uh, but I look for an appreciation of the different perspectives that are required, an understanding of the different perspectives that are required, uh, and ultimately an organizational plan to build out the team. You know, examples of this in, in advances in genomics and in sequencing are, are really starting to transform industries outside of healthcare. Uh, companies like Clear Labs in food safety and Biota in oil and gas you'll need to be able to bring together genomics and bioinformatics on the one hand and a deep industry experience and expertise on the other. Uh, in therapeutics, Sentibio, uh, I think, is a great example of a multidisciplinary approach. Where the founder, Tim Liu, is, is assembling a team of computer scientists and engineers and biologists uh, to develop his his platform, uh, which is really a programmable synthetic gene circuit platform that will hopefully be be helpful in developing the next generation of cell therapies.
0: So you mentioned you know a lack of balance on the team would be a red flag. What are some sort of positive attributes, or I guess checkered flags, that you might look for when when assessing uh, the team of a potential investment?
3: Well, a big thing I'm, I'm a huge fan of, something I love about our industry, is how often I see in teams a passion for mission. You know, I've lived this over and over as an entrepreneur and as an operator, uh, and I, now I look for it as an investor. Right, The desire to combine a big and meaningful problem with a core technology insight that enables people to change lives for the better. Uh, this certainly isn't limited to healthcare, uh, but I do consider it a pretty defining element of, of what we do and why I do what I do. You know, passion alone isn't enough for success, but it certainly makes a difference to me and what I want to invest in.
1: Greg, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us.
3: Thanks for including me.
1: Now we're going to do my favorite segment of the week, another lightning round.
0: So let's start in the field of cardiovascular drugs. Next month, we are going to get the answer to a multi-billion dollar question.
1: So what is that question, Damien?
0: So there's this company called Esperion Therapeutics, and they have a plan that makes sense on paper. Right now, if you have high cholesterol, most likely you will get statin therapy, which are age-old drugs that cost pennies a day if you have insurance. If those statins either don't work for you or you can't tolerate them, a doctor might reach for this pricey injectable class of medicines called PCSK9 inhibitors, but those tend to cost more than $10,000 a year, so their use has been fairly limited. What Asperion seeks to do is develop a pill that would be better than statins, Maybe not as strong as PCSK9's, but definitely cheaper. And
1: is this drug expected to work?
0: So that's the multi-billion dollar question. So far, in clinical trials, it appears to do what Asperion wants it to do, which is lower cholesterol, a little bit better than statins when added to statins. Maybe not at the level of those injectables, but as we mentioned, there could still be a market for it anyway. The issue is, in Asperion's last big clinical trial, there was a hint that there could be a safety problem. So in the study more patients who got the drug died than those who got placebo. It wasn't a statistically significant difference. However, it was alarming to some people. And so what we're all looking forward to next month are the results from another large trial, which is basically poised to cement whether the drug is in fact safe enough to win FDA approval after all.
1: Next up, we're going to talk about why CAR-Ts work or don't work.
0: Exactly. So there are two FDA-approved CAR-T therapies from Novartis and from Gilead Sciences. And to this point, we have generally assume that they work about as well as one another. But as our colleague Sherry and Begley wrote about, there is a key difference between the two in the form of a little molecule that you attach to the CAR-T in order to drum up the immune response that you hope will kill cancer cells. The two therapies use different types of molecules and science is gradually learning about the differences between them.
1: So does this finding have any bearing on whether doctors should prescribe one of the two CAR-T therapies instead of the other? That's what's interesting. Right now,
0: no. So the authors of the latest research kind of take pains to point out that they don't feel comfortable asserting that one is better than the other. But what they do point out could be key for the future, which is that one of those molecules seems to work more quickly and more intensely and then fade away. The other seems to work more gradually and last longer in the body. So as we watch how the CAR-T story plays out in the long term, because again, the technology is fairly new, this molecule may end up being a key differentiator as to which therapy is better, but it's early days yet, and we don't know in which direction that might point.
1: Next up. So this week, I ventured into Silicon Valley's heart of darkness and went to Y Combinator's Demo Day.
0: So to me, only about half of those words were legible. What is Y Combinator's Demo Day?
1: So Y Combinator is the storied Silicon Valley uh, startup accelerator. They've backed Airbnb, um, some of the biggest companies in uh, the tech world. And they twice a year hold what's called Demo Day, uh, which is an opportunity for the startups they've backed to get on stage and make their pitch to investors.
0: So you were there to keep an eye on what was going on in the life sciences there, and that all sounds like tech conference fodder. What did you see in the biotech space at Demo Day?
1: So what's interesting is that uh, these Demo Days are getting more and more heavy on biology. Uh, This year, uh, Y Combinator said that 25% of the startups in, in their summer class are working on biology. That's up from none at all in 2010. Uh, so it was a big shift and uh, one that I think was was certainly palpable in the room. It was a little odd to have these companies working on cell therapy, really complicated diagnostics and laboratory tools uh, presenting uh, right after the companies working on laundry detergent subscriptions and macaroni and cheese.
0: So what were the most interesting biotech companies you saw?
1: So the one that stood out to me was a blood test that aims to bypass needles altogether by turning to women's used menstrual pads as a collection device. The idea is so galaxy brain, right? Elizabeth Holmes couldn't get finger pricks to work. So we'll skip that entirely.
0: Disruption. Disruption. That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud.
1: thank you to dom smith and matthew orr who produced this week's episode
0: matthew orr is our senior producer and rick burke is our executive producer
1: and we'd love to hear from you tell us what you like and what you don't like about this week's episode tell us where you're listening from ask us questions or send us your best parody of a demo day pitch you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com we really do value the feedback so thank you
0: See you next week.